This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. I want to ask you to join me in your Bible in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. We're going to press forward tonight in this amazing book, considering another one of the foundational principles for the Christian life that Paul presents to us here in the book of Colossians. And we'll be finishing out this second chapter tonight. We're going to be picking up in verse 16, and we're going to be considering the subject of freedom. Now, freedom in many ways is a beautiful concept to consider. I think of those throughout history who have tasted the sweetness of freedom after ever only knowing bondage. And it's hard to even imagine the floods of joy that would accompany those words, you are free. And you know, there's an example of that in scripture, uh, a group who got to experience the sweet taste of freedom from slavery. And that's back in the book of Exodus chapter 15. The people of Israel there are looking back over the waters of the Red Sea. They're overwhelmed with joyful praise as the truth sinks in. We are free. We are completely and utterly free from our Egyptian taskmasters. God has brought them out of the land of Egypt with the ten plagues. He's brought them across the Red Sea. And then he's brought the Red Sea back down on their enemies, the Egyptians. And now as the Israelites look back over those waters, they realize it's over. Our bondage is over. Our slavery is over. We have been set free. And there in chapter 15 of Exodus, uh, they just erupt into worship to God. And more than half of that chapter is just them singing this song of praise to God for the liberty, the freedom that he's given them. They, they begin the song in verse one, I will sing unto the Lord for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. And they continue on just giving praise to God for what he's done. We are free and God did it. Praise God for his deliverance, for his salvation. And it's a beautiful song of jubilant praise. But the chapter doesn't end there. The song does end, and the people travel on their way, and soon they find themselves in a place called Mara, where the water is bitter and undrinkable. And what do we find them doing? Praise God for the salvation he's given us. Praise God that we're free. This is wonderful. No, they start murmuring. They're set free, and the way scripture gives us the story, it's like immediately they turn to complaining against the God who gave them their freedom. So freedom is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing, but it can easily be misused. Just think of a child leaving home for the first time. That newfound freedom can be a marvelous opportunity or it can be a dangerous trap. Also, there are things that can be done in the name of freedom that are just downright wicked. 
There is much that is unwise and unhelpful and ungodly that has been done in our country in the name of freedom. Freedom for many people is a synonym for lasciviousness, indecency, and depravity. And so for those reasons, many of us as Christians are wary of talk of freedom as it relates to our Christian life. And people start talking about Christian liberty or freedom in Christ, and we immediately get, get suspicious. We, we don't like that talk sometimes because these things are true. But tonight I want us to do our best to see this subject of freedom the way that God does. And as we do that, to see the joy and the beauty of the freedom that we have in Christ, and also see that if it is embraced and lived out the way that God intends, it will not serve as an avenue for fleshly indulgence, but instead a source of power and motivation for righteousness and service to God. So let's pray and ask the Lord to guide us in this, and then we'll, we'll dig in here in Colossians 2. Let's pray. Father, I thank you tonight that every word that you've given us in the Bible is good and true and profitable. There are certain subjects that it's easier for us to turn to and other ones sometimes that we can avoid because um, they're uncomfortable or we just have a hard time explaining them. Lord, I pray that the subject we're considering tonight would not be that way for us but we would truly be able to see the, the beauty and the wonder of the truths shared in these verses, to see this the way that you see it. As we look at your word tonight, I ask for your grace, that your spirit would lead, that none of us would be distracted uh, by the way that things are presented, but instead we'd just be able to look at your word and see what's there and rejoice in it and take it to heart and that our lives would be changed in, in line with what your word says. Please guide us that way. That's what we desire, and that's what we need. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we are getting to Colossians 16. Like I said, that's where we're picking up in our study. But before we get there, I do want to consider um, what... I, I want us to consider what freedom looks like, but first of all, I want us to be reminded of how we as Christians have freedom. And often as we come to Paul's epistles, um, it's hard to just jump right in and get the idea of what's going on because there's so much there, there's so much going on. So usually it's, it's good if we can back verses and get a running start so that we can really get into the richness of what he's sharing. So that's what I want us to do tonight. Um, back up and look at verses 13 through 15 and the truths that they share because it sets an important foundation for what we'll consider in the rest of the chapter. This is part of the passage that we looked at last Sunday as we considered our new life in Christ. And Paul says there, beginning in verse 13, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. 
So Paul's saying you were dead in sin, but Jesus gave you life. Through his sacrifice, you're forgiven. The enemy is conquered. You have new life. You are free. That leads us then into verse 16. We ask questions like, well, if we're free, what are we free from? What does freedom look like? If we're, if we're talking about being free in Christ, then what, what exactly does that mean? Well, certainly at the heart of that um, is the fact that we are free from the penalty and power of sin. And Paul uh, referenced that in those verses we just read. But here in Colossians 2, Uh, In the verses we're going to look at tonight, Paul points out some of the aspects of that freedom and what it should lead us to do and not do. Because we are free in Christ, how ought that to affect our behavior? How ought that to affect our perspective on things? And that's really what we're going to be looking at tonight. So, first of all, we should recognize that freedom means Freedom from criticism. We see this in verses 16 and 17. Paul says there, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. So here Paul talks about people judging other people. But before we consider that, I think we need to lay another foundation before we can really get to that subject and and talk about that in a clear way. And that's a greater judgment. We talked about this some last time. Remember the picture that we considered. If the, the, the picture of the walls in this auditorium being filled with all the laws of God and us being able to look around and see all the laws that we have broken and consider the way that the law condemns us. And if we think about, if it's just us and the law and God, and we are standing before God for judgment, there is no way that any one of us would get anything other than an absolutely guilty verdict. Before God, in our sin, as we stand, as we are, all of us are guilty. All of us are judged by God as those who have broken the law. But of course we know that the story doesn't end there. Christ by his blood has forgiven. He's blotted out the ordinances that stand against us. It has all been taken care of at the cross. So those who have received Christ are justified. Declared by God himself to be free from guilt. Romans 3, 1 John 2 and 1 John 4 all call Christ the propitiation one of those words that we don't use a lot, but it means the satisfaction. So for those who know Christ, we stand before God and he looks at Christ and he says, it is enough, I am satisfied. That's the reality of, as we stand before God, if we are believers, what that judgment looks like. We stand before God for judgment The law says you're guilty, but Christ says I took care of all that, and God says I'm satisfied. They're justified. That's the reality when we think about judgment before God if we are believers. There is no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. 
So last time we talked about our standing in Christ. We're complete in him. He's taken care of it all. We're no longer under judgment because of what Christ has done for us. That's important to understand as we consider what Paul is talking about in verses 16 and 17. Because here, Paul's not talking about God standing in judgment over us. He's talking about others criticizing and condemning us. So it's pretty easy to picture what Paul is is talking about here. We've got the believers in Colossae. All right, some of them were probably used to be Jews or were Jewish ethnically, and now they believed in Christ. Others, probably many of them, were Gentiles who had received Christ. And over here, you've got these others who claim to be believers, and they're coming up to the people in Colossae, and they're saying, your diet is wrong, your calendar is wrong, the way that you're, you're not properly keeping the Sabbath, you've got this wrong, and you've got this wrong, and you've got this wrong, and because of that, you stand condemned before God. That's what the Colossians are being told. These things are wrong, and so you stand condemned. Paul says, those who say things like that are missing the point. The law that God gave to Israel served a purpose, but as he says in this verse here, it was just a shadow of, of Christ himself. In Christ, the law is completely fulfilled. It's satisfied, it's brought to its perfection. Uh, So the the Christian has Christ, the perfect fulfiller of the law, standing before God on his behalf. And so with Christ standing on my behalf before God, saying he's righteous because his, my righteousness is on him, how foolish is it for somebody else to come up and say, you're not righteous before God, and here's why. Here's the list of reasons that you're not righteous before God. Paul's saying, that's foolishness. Don't let people come and tell you, you need to do this and this and this and this and this to be righteous before God when Christ took care of it all. God is satisfied. He, I I am justified. I'm declared righteous before him. There's nothing more that needs to be done to satisfy God's justice. And so if God is satisfied, what can man say? So, I stand righteous before God because of what Christ has done for me. And when others come up and they say, You are not righteous before God, and here's why. Here's the list of reasons. You need to be doing this and this and this and this and this if you want to stand righteous before God. I can say, you're wrong because God said that in Christ, I stand completely righteous. And so you say, that sounds great. So that means it doesn't matter what I eat. It doesn't matter what I drink. It doesn't matter what I think about special days. All this stuff Paul's talking about, it really doesn't matter. If somebody comes alongside me and they they try to point out some area in my life that may not please God, I can just ignore them, right? It doesn't matter what I do because it's all been taken care of. Well, no. But hold on to that thought. We'll get to it. All right? Those of you who who know Christ, you, you realize absolutely not. We can't take it there. But Paul is saying, 
that because of our standing in Christ, we are free from criticism. We do not need to be bound by what others say about our standing before God. We do not need to let that rule what we do and who we are. And they, try to, they can try to drag us in and say, oh, if you're going to be a Christian that really pleases God, that really stands righteous before God, here is what you need to be doing that you're not doing. We can say, here's what God says in his word and here's what Christ says and before God, I am justified. This is something that is really vital for us as believers to get a hold of or we will become bound by other people and their expectations of us. And the criticism they throw at us will begin to control us. But if we can take this to heart and say, I know my standing before God in Christ. I'm not going to be bound by that, that they have to say about me. So Paul is saying, don't let these people judge you. Don't let them condemn you and say, in these areas, you're not doing what you should, should do. He said, that's not true. Don't let it bind you. You are free in Christ. An illustration of this idea um, and I don't want to hit too close to home for those of you who are perhaps in college or high school at this point, but let's think about turning in a paper that, that you're assigned by your teacher. Depending on what grade you get on that paper, it's probably going to have an impact on what you're going to do. So if you get a bad grade on the paper, you are going to probably go show it to your friends. Hear me out. And you're going to say, look at the grade my teacher gave me on this paper. I worked so hard on this thing. I don't deserve this bad grade. Look at this. It's not, I shouldn't have gotten an F. I should have at least gotten a C plus. And then you'll have your friends take a look at the paper. And they'll say, you're right. That's not fair. This is, I, I mean, you're a budding author here. You absolutely should have gotten a better grade than that. And you will feel, you'll feel better about the whole situation because your friends have backed you up and you'll say, I don't deserve that. But if you show it to your friends and they say, he was right. This is horrible. You absolutely deserve that grade. That's going to mean a lot, right? You say, ooh, I came to you for support. I came, I came for encouragement, for somebody to back me up and, and, and make me feel justified in my anger about this. And, and now I don't have anywhere to turn. And their criticism is going to really sting, isn't it? On the other hand, if you write a paper and your teacher gives you a good grade, and you go and you show it to your friends. And they say, you didn't deserve that grade. This is a horrible paper. You shouldn't have gotten an A+. Plus. I, I, this, is, this is awful. You, clearly you didn't put the work you should have into this. Is that going to sting the same way it would if it was an F? No, because you're going to say, 
I don't care if you think that because the teacher gave me a good grade and I care about what he thinks and what you think doesn't really matter because he's already shown me that I'm okay. I did a good job. It might be a silly example, but in Christ, he said, you're justified. You're set before me because of what Christ has done for me, because you stand in Christ you are justified. And if we get hold of that and we realize that's what Christ has to say about me, that's what God has to say about me, it's not gonna matter what our friends say. It's not gonna matter how they try to criticize because we're going to say, here's what God has to say and that's what really matters. So Paul is saying we're set free from the power of criticism of others because if we recognize our standing in Christ, but also, we are set free from distraction. Now, I want to take a minute with this next verse to explain what Paul is saying here, because it's a bit of an odd verse at first look, and it could be a little bit hard to understand exactly what he's saying. Verse 18, Paul says, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. What is he talking about? What does he mean by this? Well, I want to take a couple of those phrases and explain what he's, what he's saying. So first he says, let no man beguile you of your reward. Uh, he's using athletic or competitive terms here. So the idea, the picture that he's painting with this is the idea of disqualifying someone or tricking them out of receiving their prize. No one can trick us out of our salvation. Nobody can fool us into, oops, I'm not saved anymore. That's impossible. Salvation cannot be lost. But they can trick us out of our rewards by getting us distracted, by getting us off track. So he's using this this athletic picture of someone somehow sabotaging someone else, getting them off track, getting them to disqualify themselves so that no longer can they receive the prize. He's saying that can happen to you as a believer. Don't let it happen. Then he goes on to say a a couple of pitfalls to avoid here. He talks about in a voluntary humility. That is the idea of ritualistic self-denial or asceticism. So it's the idea of uh, saying that if I deny myself in these ways, if I um, if if I mortify the flesh in this way then I'm going to really be a true good Christian. If I can, if I can uh, attack my own flesh, uh, then I can achieve some level that I, that I don't achieve otherwise. He also talks about worshiping angels. Now, I wish I could say that both of these ideas seem completely foreign to us today, but they don't. You can find all kinds of craziness online, and this stuff has existed through the centuries. 
So there are groups that believe that ascetic practices like self-deprivation, vows of silence, celibacy, are the means to self-purification and true spirituality. If you do these things, you put yourself on another level. Many a Christian has been unhelpfully caught up in rituals of self-mortification and, and lost sight of the true nature of Christ and of grace. We can get obsessed and pulled off course with these ideas. What about the worshiping of angels? Well, there are hundreds, maybe thousands of websites and videos online explaining in great detail facts about angels and the spiritual realm, spending much more time teaching facts about spiritual beings that are clearly extra-biblical than they do sharing truth about God that is clearly taught in Scripture. This is happening all over the place. This obsession with spiritual beings, this pulling away of focus to these peripheral issues. And many a teacher intrudes, as Paul says here, into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, proudly teaching about things that they've neither experienced nor learned from scripture, but they sound really amazing. And so people listen to them and watch them and get pulled in and unfortunately, many Christians get pulled in and they blindly follow along behind and they unknowingly give up their opportunity for reward by following after foolishness. Now, what is at the heart of the problem with, with these things, with this, this voluntary humility, this, this asceticism, or this worship of angels? What's at the heart? What, what's causing people to get off track in this way? Well, Paul says in verse 19, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourish, nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. So what are they failing to do? They're not holding the head. And if you've got your Bible open, then you see that that word head is capitalized. This is talking about the head, Jesus Christ. We talked back in chapter one about the fact that he is the head of the church. He is the mastermind. He is the source of life. And they are not holding on to him, keeping their focus on him, and they're getting drawn off to these other things. These certain types of practices that they think will, be, will lead them to true spirituality or these obscure ideas and doctrines and, and theories that they think will lead them to some deeper understanding. And they're getting pulled off course because they're not holding on to the head. They're not keeping their hold, keeping their focus on Christ. We have a place to look to Christ. We just need to look to him. And that sets us free from looking all around, trying to find truth in piles of, of false belief. 
we can just look to Christ and we're complete in him. We don't have to be distracted. We don't have to be pulled in every other direction. Singleness of focus saves us from a lot. And because of Christ, we can have that singleness of focus. How many of you, how many of you noticed when Rite Aid Pharmacy changed their logo? All right, I'm glad I have some, some, some people out there that are like me, that are really weird. You notice things like that. All right. I notice stuff like that. So I'll be driving down the road and I'll notice, oh, that, that place changed their marketing. Oh, that's a new logo. Oh, they changed their colors. You know, they, they, they switched this up in some way or another. I notice that stuff. And so I'll be driving down the road and I'll point it out to my wife. And I remember actually specifically the day we were driving down Airline Boulevard and I looked over and I noticed uh, we, we drove past the Rite Aid that's there and I pointed it out to her. I said, Rite Aid changed their logo. And I started to make fun of it um, and, and what a bad move I thought it was and how ugly it was. And, but I notice and I point stuff like that out all the time. But do you know how my wife responded to that and how she tends to respond when I say things like that? She says, ever so sweetly, Keep your eyes on the road. <laughs> I love looking around. I love noticing those things. And they're building this and they're changing this and this is going on. And meanwhile, she's gripping and she's doing the stomping thing because I'm not watching the road. And I'm going to be honest and I'm going to confess tonight that she is right. That's what I'm supposed to be focusing on. I'm supposed to keep my eyes on the road. When I'm driving, I need to be paying attention to this, and this doesn't matter. <laughs> if we hold on to the head, if we keep our eyes on Christ, we're not going to end up getting pulled off in all of these other directions and wasting our time and wasting our energy and wasting our attention and losing our opportunity for a reward because we're getting distracted. There's much that can distract us and get us off track, and much of it seems very innocent, even pious. But Paul warns throughout his, his letters about this sort of thing. 1 Timothy 4 is really clear. Here's what Paul says there, 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And here's what they're doing. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Are there groups out there that are preaching celibacy as a mark of spirituality? Are there groups out there who are preaching vegetarianism as a necessary part of being a biblical Christian? These are ideas that have been around since the beginning. And Paul is saying 
They are poison. Now, I don't mean that there are not truly spiritual Christians who choose to be celibate all their lives, and that's what God has chosen for them. I'm not saying that there are not Christians who choose a vegetarian diet and do that to the glory of God. But people get fixed on these things and they say, this is the key. This is true spirituality. This is the hidden wisdom. And Paul says some things that I would say, wow, that's dramatic about these people. But what does he say about them? He says that they're getting their ideas from seducing spirits, demonic power. And then he says that they are propounding, they are sharing, teaching doctrines of devils. Satan is really smart in the things that he'll try to bring in to distract Christians. He'll make them look pious. He'll make them look holy. He'll make them look spiritual. He'll even find a way to tie them back to scripture somehow. But in Christ, we're set free from foolishness like this. In Christ, our priorities are set straight. And whether it's simply not wasting our time on foolish questions or it's avoiding dangerous error, in Christ, our understanding is corrected. In Christ, we recognize that he fully fulfills. He, we are complete in him. And when we keep our eyes on Christ, we're set free from distractions like this. So thank God that through the simple gospel of Jesus Christ, we are free from having to engage in all of that foolishness and get distracted by that sort of thing. If we just hold on to him, if we keep our eyes on him and we stay with the clear, uh, everlasting word of God, we're set free from all that distraction. All those things that can draw us off in unhelpful and even wicked directions. But that's not all. And this next part really goes to the heart of much of this that Paul's talking about in this passage. We're free from rules. Now again, hear me out. But Paul is clear about this, verses 20 and 21. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why... As though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not. We'll continue on in just a minute. But So we're dead, we're buried, we're resurrected with Christ. That is the spiritual reality of our standing. Paul says, if you are dead to the way of the world, why are you still following the law? Why are you letting yourself be drawn into all of these ordinances? The law says, don't touch that, don't eat that, don't hold that. Now clearly, here he's referring to the ceremonial law. So specifically, it seems that he's talking about the rules regarding things that were unclean. And if you just read the book of Leviticus, you know exactly what I'm talking about. All the rules in there about uncleanness and how uncleanness needs to be treated. And the fact that if you touch this, you have to wash yourself with water, you'll be unclean until the evening, and then you can be clean again. And all these rules, you can't touch this, you can't eat this, 
You can't do this in this way or you're gonna be unclean. Paul is saying, you are dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world. We talked about that last time, the foundational principles of the world. If you are dead with Christ, he says, why are you still putting yourself in bondage to these rules? Now, many of his hearers, many of the readers perhaps would say, whoa, 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 whoa. And especially as he continues on here. Because we think, well, who made those rules? God did, right? So why would Paul be saying this? They ought to ignore the law of God? He goes on, he says in verse 22, which all are to perish with the using. So he's saying these things are not eternal. But then he says, after the commandments and doctrines of men. Now wait, wasn't God the one who set this all up? Didn't God create all those rules? So why is he saying that these are the, the teachings, these are the, the way, the, the, um, the commands and the teachings of men? Well, the best guess that I have is that what Paul is communicating here is that men have taken these rules that have been set down by God, rules that from the beginning were intended to be temporary, and they've made them something else. What purpose did these rules that God made serve? Well, we could talk about that for a while and different things that they served, but in many ways, these were, these were embellishments. These were God doing specific things with the nation of Israel saying, you're gonna do things differently and it's going to set you apart and everyone's gonna look at you and say, they do everything different than we do and it's because their God told them to. And it's going to put these, these embellishments, these decorations, if you will, on the people of Israel that's going to set them apart from other people and make people take notice and make them ask questions and make them realize something is different. But Paul actually says here that these things perish with the using. What he's saying is that the more these rules are followed, the more they go away. The longer the ordinances are followed, the longer the ceremonial law is kept, the emptier and emptier it is shown to be. The more that everyone is realizing, okay, this is not the way to righteousness. This is not how we are right with God. It's not by following this big list of rules. And so he says, through their using, they're, being, they're perishing. They're, they're, they're passing away but what some people are trying to do is take these embellishments and make them the foundation and say, this is what the Jewish nation is all about. Forget the fact that it's all about the one true God. No, the Jewish nation is about keeping this rule and this rule and this rule and this rule and this rule. If you're a good Jew, it's all about following rules and, you know, worship God. So Paul is saying, we got to realize what these are and what they are not. Do not adopt the view that other people have of these rules. Verse 23, he says, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. Paul is saying these rules can look really good. 
think of a Jew who follows all the rules. They're going to look so moral and religious. They're going to look very pious. But let me ask you, are there religions out there that excel at making someone look moral and religious? How about the Jehovah's Witnesses or the LDS Church? How about Muslims or Jews? All of those groups can look very pious, and they can sometimes even put professing Christians to shame with the outward wholesomeness of their lives, but rules are no road to God. Rules do not make us righteous. Rules do not give us a justified standing before God. Christ took care of that once and for all. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying Christ has taken care of the law. He's fulfilled all those rules. These are not required to give you good standing before God. You're not recognizing yourselves for who you are and what's happened in your lives and the fact that you're dead with Christ and alive with him if you're continuing to follow these rules. So here we are. We're free from criticism because of our standing in Christ. We're free from distraction because of our focus on Christ. We're free from rules because of the work of Christ. And so... I guess that leaves us free to live as we please and do and say and eat and wear and watch and practice whatever we want. If we're free, does that mean that the law of God is totally out the window? And any mature Christian is going to say, absolutely not. The Holy Spirit in us uh, tells us that's, that's not true. So what is a healthy Christian relationship with the law? Paul's been talking about the law here. He's been talking about Um, how the law should be viewed and how it should not be viewed. And so this can be one of those issues where we we have a hard time. Where do we land on this as Christians? On the one side, we've got, got, you know, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, and, and we're being told, follow these rules, follow these laws, this is God's way. And on the other side, we're being told, you're free from the law, you don't have to worry about any of that anymore. So what are we supposed to think? Where are we supposed to stand? To really get into this, we have to understand that the law has a dual purpose. First of all, the law serves to show us our sin. So Romans 3 tells us that by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so one of the great purposes for God giving the law is to show us all that we're condemned. Again, you think of that illustration. If all the law is around us and we're looking at it, we're all going to realize I'm condemned. If I see the law of God and I compare it to my life and I'm honest, I realize there's a problem. I am a sinner. I have broken the law. And that is a great purpose for God giving the law. He wants people to know their guiltiness before him. But the law of God also serves another purpose. The law of God in his word reveals his character and his design. So the law shows us what matters to God, what is good and evil in his sight, and how he's designed the world. God made the world to operate according to his law. So when you live according to God's way, life works. 
But as Proverbs 13 says, the way of transgressors is hard. Those who are breaking the law of God are constantly trying to work against the laws that God has built into the way life itself operates. It's like trying to to pretend that the law of gravity doesn't exist. It's not going to work. So God gave us his law to reveal this is what matters to me. This is what I see as righteous. This is what I see as unrighteous. This is how I've designed life to work. This is how life is not supposed to work. So a Christian should realize and rejoice in our freedom from the law. I do not have to come to the law and say, what do I need to do today so that God will be happy with me? We can rejoice in that. I am not bound by the law. And Paul says that over and over and over again in his letters. We are not bound by the law. We're free from the law. But as a believer, I ought to cherish the law of God. It's an expression of his person, of his character. It's a guideline for the life that he intends. That means that it is precious. I ought to love the law. Christians are free from the law. We're not bound by it, trying to appease God by following his rules, but we ought to see God's law the way that God sees it. Think about God's relationship with his own law. Does God have to follow the law? Absolutely not. He set it all up. He doesn't have to follow the law. But does God live in accordance with what his law says? He does. He's free to do what he pleases. He does not need to be bound by his law. He does not feel any duty to fulfill his law. He stands over the law. And yet God acts in concert with his own law because he loves his law. So God does not lie because God hates lies and he loves truth. Not because the law said, thou shalt not bear false witness against my neighbor. And God says, I guess I can't lie. God is faithful, not because the law says thou shalt not commit adultery, so God loves faithfulness, I better be faithful. God follows his own law, not because he's following the law, but because the law is good and it's a perfect expression of who he is and what he loves, and so that's how he's going to act. And I think that ought to mirror the way that we look at God's law, not as here are rules for me to follow, wow, look at this. This is what God loves. And boy, do I love what God loves. Psalm 119 gives expression of this idea over and over and over again. One example is verses 33 to 35. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes. Statutes, what are those? Rules, laws, commands, He's calling on God to teach him his commands. And he says, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. 
Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. I love God's way. I love God's law because it shows me God's way. And God, I want to know your law. I want to follow your law. I want to take your law to heart because I love you and I want to do things your way and your way is best. That is how Christians ought to be related to God's law. That's a proper relationship with the law of God. We're not bound by the law as those who are under the law, but we ought to love and cherish and seek to uphold the law because it's good and precious and true. Before flying, a pilot is supposed to make use of a written checklist to make sure that everything is as it should be. So in the cockpit, he has to carefully check flight controls, lights, radios, gauges, heading indicator, and lots of other things, almost all of which I have zero understanding of. But I can imagine, having worked with checklists before, that that checklist could become tedious especially if a pilot flies the same aircraft over and over, his familiarity with the controls and how that airplane functions would make it seem unnecessary and burdensome to once again go through the whole written checklist. But what might feel like a burden could, to a pilot with a different perspective, be an incredible blessing? After all, that checklist could mean the difference between life and death. It could be the key to that pilot discovering a crucial mistake or a faulty instrument that can be addressed without the aircraft leaving the ground instead of being discovered at 35,000 feet, necessitating an emergency turnaround or even a crash landing. It all depends on perspective. If we view the law of God in the right way, we'll see it as a joy and not a burden. Paul says this in Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So if you know Christ tonight, you're free. You're free from judgment because Christ stands and presents his righteousness on our behalf. That sets you free from criticism because you recognize your standing in him. We're free from distraction as we cling to Christ as our head. And we're free from law because Christ has fulfilled the law and made it a blessing instead of a curse to us. I want to read those verses we've considered in Colossians chapter 2 from beginning to end. So Colossians 2 verse 16 through 23. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. 
Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered, and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in all in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. I hope that we can all cherish our freedom bought at such a price. Don't cheapen the blood of Christ by letting yourself be pulled into bondage to the criticism or judgment of others, to distracting extra-biblical beliefs and practices, or to a slavish keeping of the law. As Paul says in Galatians 5.13, Brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. If you know Christ, then you're free. And in just a moment, we're going to turn our attention to the reason that we have this freedom, the the reason we need not be bound by these things. But as freedom is a great gift, it is an opportunity that by God's grace, we ought not squander. Paul will go into this in the next chapter, but let us all commit to Christ tonight that we'll cherish the freedom he's given and use it, not for our flesh, for his glory, and for the good of others. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we are free from sin. We are free from the law. And because of Christ, we are free from so many things that can entrap us and draw us away. Help us understand this. Help us embrace it. Guide us in this, we ask. As we are turn our attention now to the Lord's table, help our hearts be prepared. Help us be grateful. Help us to truly joy in the freedom you've given us tonight. May this also be a time of consecration. And Lord, if there is someone here tonight who does not know that freedom, who is still bound by all of those things, looking around for truth, may they look to Christ tonight. Recognize that his sacrifice, his salvation is enough and they can be saved tonight. Guide us now, we ask. Lead our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.